0: Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eales. In this episode, I'm joined by film critics Travis Johnson and Andrew Pearce. Um, This episode is much different to Cinema Australia's usual podcast episodes. Instead of being joined by a filmmaker to discuss a single film, Travis and Andrew and myself will be discussing the year that was as far as Australian cinema goes. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Uh, Thank you very much. So um, We've just
1: cut each other off already. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Perfect. Let's let's start how we want to proceed, shall we? Um, Travis and Andrew are two people I have a tremendous amount of respect for. Uh, Travis is arguably one of Australia's best film writers whose work can be found oh. in Filminc, uh, The Curb, SBS, Empire Magazine, Celluloid and Whiskey and even Cinema Australia. Um, and if you haven't read Travis's, uh, the Nightingale piece in Metro magazine, then you're missing out on an incredible examination of one of the year's best films. Um, it's a must read and you must seek it out. Uh, Travis, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you?
1: Uh, I'm on ABC radio. Uh, I, I'm getting interviewed by SBS tomorrow, actually. Like I'm all over the shop. I'm like a multimedia threat. It's crazy. <laughs>
0: None of it pays, but I'm but I'm very busy. <laughs> You're surviving, so that's the main that's the main point. Yeah, <laughs> um, Andrew runs the Curb, uh, which is a website that focuses on culture, unity, reviews, and banter. Um, The Curb is rapidly becoming uh, or growing to become one of Australia's most respected voices in film. I remember meeting Andrew a few years ago at uh, uh, Revelation Film Festival in Perth where he was handing out stickers for his then-website, AB Film Review, and I remember thinking to myself, uh, wow, this guy's got stickers, and to me... To me, that meant that this guy believed in himself. And I have a lot of respect for people who believe in themselves. Um, It's been a pleasure to watch Andrew develop the curb over the years. And if you're not following him, uh, you really should be. Uh, Andrew, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you?
2: Uh, no, not really. I mean, I I just want to say, like, I've I've been inspired by both of you guys to to write and and follow Australian film and and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really just following you guys in the shadow, and hopefully I can uh, hold up to what you guys do and and the output that you do as well. Um, and. I guess a small big up for myself. I don't tend to beat this drum all too much, but I did win an award at the beginning of the year for uh, Best Writing for an Australian Film, or uh, well, Best Review for an Australian Film, and um, that really kind of boosted my ego enough uh, to go, yeah, all right, this is something that you can actually continue on doing. And uh, I think that this year has been a lot of fun. I've uh, I've really grown the reach in a lot of ways, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, fantastic. Yeah,
1: I was on the jury for that award. <laughs> <laughs> oh well now it all makes sense <laughs> <laughs> but but i didn't know it was andrews i didn't know that yeah, the it was, name
2: the c- name was taken off oh, yeah,
1: yeah right, so it's correct. anonymized and you know you get a whole bunch of stuff and you're reading through everything and it was it was a clear winner like it was several notches above everyone else who who not to to denigrate anyone who i can't name because i don't know who they are mm-hmm. uh but it was like well and
0: truly the leader of the pack i think it was a unanimous uh decision andrew what was the piece and where can we find it
2: uh, well, obviously, yeah, head over to thecurb.com.au, and it was a review for West of Sunshine, mm-hmm. and uh, really explored the, uh, the the difficulties that the the bludger dad uh, has to go through, as shown by Damien Hill, uh, and so so great in that that film, and such a powerful performance, and. I thought that I should uh, try and honor that as much as possible. I wrote it before he passed away and uh, I thought I should try and honor that performance as much as possible and I think that came through in my review and that's what I intend to do with all my reviews as much as possible. Uh, now, it's I not just, easy but I try.
0: <laughs> I, I can't believe that you've mentioned Dame because at the start of this I wanted to I told you guys that I'll be talking about something that you guys weren't aware of, but um yeah. the, the 2019 has been a, it's been a big year for Australian cinema. Um, uh, but I want to start on on this sombre note and uh, I didn't mention it to you guys because I wanted it to be off the cuff, but 2019 is the last time we will get to see a Dame Hill film. Um, mm. How lucky are we that we got to see two Dame Hill performances this year with Locus and Slam and uh, the three of us got to see Measure for Measure at Cinefestos in August, which Dame wrote. Um, Travis, what did Dame bring to Australian cinema that made him such an exciting talent? wow what a question <laughs> um
1: i just caught up with paul island in la the other week actually mm-hmm. and we we spoke about dame because his name is going to keep coming up anytime anyone who ever knew him is in the same room at the same time yeah uh dame brought a kind of raw unsentimental sensitivity to his best work he often got cast as like a thug or a or, a, you know, a bloke or, you know, a kind of sort of rough character in, in sort of supporting roles. But when he was sort of put in the spotlight, he was still coming across as one of those characters, but he always let you see the humanity and the intelligence and the anxiety and the and the inner conflict. Like, and it, you could just read it on his face. And uh, I think that reflected his own life, his own path, his own struggles and his own triumphs and his own discomfort at being who he was in the fairly kind of rarefied and, and class conscious, uh, of the Australian film industry. Mm. Um, I love the guy. I really fucking adored Dame. Uh, he was one of my favorite people. Um, and I, I still get upset thinking that, you know, we're going to miss out on a lifetime of, of Dame Hill performances and scripts. And I'm sure he would have directed for the screen at some point as well. Like Mm. it fucking sucks.
2: Mm, mm. Uh,
1: but, uh, Yeah, like he was just one of the best man, Um, and unpretentious, you know, and self self deprecating. Uh, So that I hosted a number of Q and A's with him, and sometimes it was like pulling hens teeth, but we kind (laughs) of knew the score and had fun with that.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, just uh, just a beautiful guy, just a massive talent. Mm. I remember the first time I met Dame was at Cinefest Oz when he was there for porno. Um, Me too. He seeked me out because uh, Eddie Beru told him that he had to meet me, and uh, I remember connecting straight away with uh, Dame. Uh, He was telling me about his new film called Spin Out. Um, A few years later, I met Dame again, and he was telling me about the films he was looking forward to making, and one of them was about a Ben Cousins-type character. And uh, he had so much sympathy for Ben Cousins and his family. And I think that was just testament to the kind of person that Dame was really. Um, Andrew, tell us about Dame and the kind of films he was making that made him stand out from the rest.
2: Um, I mean, porno was something that was like a bit of a gut punch of a film because it just felt so honest and, and personal and respectful to, you know, the lower class of Australia in a lot of ways. And, that was the film that really put him on the map for me. And I remember writing up a review for it because I think it was partly because you had, had praised it so much as well, Matt. And um, I had, uh, I wrote up a review and then when he was nominated for an actor award for that film, uh, deservedly so, uh, I remember the nominations coming out and getting a message through Facebook saying, you know, hey, check out the, you know, from Damien saying check out the the nominations, you know, and, and, Saying thank you very much for for the support and all that kind of stuff, and and that was the thing that really touched me. Unfortunately, I never got to meet him. Uh, I'm you know I was due to meet him uh, when he came across to Perth um, with Jason to do a Q and A for West of Sunshine, but it was my birthday, so I went out for birthday dinner instead. And I was like, oh, I'll catch him again in the future. You know, I'll catch him next time. Spin of the wheel, and uh, unfortunately, I didn't. But um, you know, he always felt respectful and like. Uh, everybody was included in his journey. Mm -hmm. And that was what really touched me so much is that he was so embracing of like, Hey, you have uh, given me a bit of care and tenderness by, you know, sharing your thoughts about your film. Even if it wasn't a positive thought, he still was very touched by the fact that somebody actually went out of their way to watch something that he had been part of. Yes. And that was important, and you know, on a personal note as well, like again i I never met the guy, but um you know, in the past two years like i've I've been through some pretty terrible times, uh, I got divorced, and that was not fun um and he noticed on Facebook that I was no longer uh, marked as married and sent me a message basically saying, Hey, guy, you know, how you doing? Is everything okay? And I was like, Look, you know, just got divorced. And he's like, Man, that really sucks. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sorry to hear that. And I'm like, You're a fucking actor-nominated actor nominated <laughs> actor. You were just in the final season of The Leftovers, a HBO <laughs> series. And you're messaging me saying, Hey, man, getting divorced is real shit. Like that just – it really is like a punch in the gut and mm-hmm. that's how great he was. Yeah. Like I'm nobody and he spent a bit of time to make sure that he made sure that, you know, hey – you're still somebody, like Mm. it's still important to feel feelings. And that, Mm. that was pretty important to me. Yeah. So that's what he meant.
0: Um, uh, I don't usually listen to my old interviews, but I went back and listened to an interview with Dame recently. um, And he said something to me, which really stuck out. And uh, this is what Dame said after I asked him what he's doing next after porno. Uh, Take a listen.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Paul and I have got a project. We're developing and we've got a meeting about on Wednesday. We'll see. So it's a thing we're writing together called uh, Allergy. It's about a couple that are allergic to each other. It, it's beautiful. It's a love story. It's sort of, um, uh, yeah, and then they have to live their lives divided by glass. So if they touch, they kind of die. So, yeah, And then I'm writing an adaption of Measure for Measure. I'm a Shakespeare play, but I'm setting it in the commission flats with amphetamines and tracksuits. And, um, yeah, it'll be, it's cool. I reckon it'll be cool. Okay. I don't know if it'll ever get made, that one, because... Some <laughs> to it.
0: um, uh, it, it's a tragedy that Dame didn't get to see measure for measure. Uh, we've seen it, and I'm sure it will be making a few must-see lists for 2020. But um, let's uh, move on to 2019. And um, I want to go on to talking about Indigenous filmmakers because 2019 was a big year for independent films, uh, movies directed by women, co-productions, feature films starring actors with disabilities, but there was a concerningly low number of films directed by Indigenous filmmakers. Um, I feel like this year really lacked a strong Indigenous voice. Um, So, gents, am I alone here? I mean, I'd love to see new uh, Indigenous Australian filmmakers starting to make their mark on the scene.
1: Yeah, it has been a bit of a drought this year, Um, um, especially coming off the back of Sweet Country, uh, which was such a a sort of a landmark film from an Indigenous perspective. Uh, and this year we we did kind of have a big Indigenous film, but it was directed by a white woman, and that's The Nightingale, yes. uh, which is a little um, hashtag problematic because, you know, own voices and who gets to tell what stories, you know, there's been a bit of debate about that. Um, there are a lot of Indigenous films in sort of active development and pre-production, though. Uh, so we've got Leah Purcells The Drover's Wife. Um, I know Ivan Sen's working on something. I think it might be his uh, long-gestating sci-fi film, which I'm really keen to see. (laughs) Uh, so we got to be careful about these sort of arbitrary kind of quasi arbitrary dates of like a year like did we get any big indigenous films in 2019 no but we're a small industry and as long as stuff is still in active development as long as the processes are ongoing um then i think we we shouldn't panic too loudly and also we did see some cool small screen stuff so we got uh robbie hood Mm -hmm uh dylan rivers digital series which was a great indigenous uh, piece of screen content so that's sort of where i'm coming from so it would have be nice to see more it's always nice to see more i definitely want more indigenous stories on screen but i don't think we need to panic over the lack of a big sort of tentpole indigenous film uh in 2019 does that make sense
0: yes perfect sense it's fantastic uh, is there anyone on your radar at the moment uh, andrew other than the you know the warwick thorntons and uh, the ivan sends and the, the rachel perkins Um, I mean,
2: yes and no. Uh, Leah Purcell, I'm very excited to see what she does with her own material uh, because that that sounds like a fascinating thing. And and of course, more voices out there in uh, in sort of uh, in cinema from Indigenous voices would be great too. And as Trevor was saying, of course, there was total control as well on ABC, which um, I tend to use my parents as a yardstick as to how. uh, impactful a TV series or a film is when they actually come to me and say, have you seen this? Because they are so out of touch with it. And every single week that Total Control was on, there was a contact to say, hey, have you watched Total Control? And I don't know how much of it was directed by uh, – was it Rachel Perkins that directed some of the episodes for it? No, uh, I
0: think. Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's that I think is a little bit more – uh, where we're going to see these stories being told. And and I'm perfectly fine with that because, you know, TV seems to be the way going forward, which I'm sure that we'll touch on a bit later on about how difficult it has been to get the reach for Australian films full stop. And, you know, as Trevor was saying with The the Nightingale, which is, you know, directed by a woman and Jennifer Kent does a superb job. It's a great film. Um, but Sweet Country came out last year and, and, did exactly, well, uh, did a very similar story and yet is not getting as much international attention as The Nightingale is. And that, I think, is a bit of a problem. Like, you know, how how are we going to get these stories out to a wider audience other than just Australians? Because Australians are sort of watching them, but I think it's more important that we get these stories out into international audiences. And, uh, you know, Wayne Blair going and doing the Dirty Dancing remake for TV over in America is... um, (laughs) fine, but it's um, not very good, you know, Mm. (laughs) and it's not having a flow and effect for top end wedding to be a success over there either.
1: Mm. I don't think I was going to say we did have Top End Wedding, which was, that was this year, wasn't it? last year? Oh, it was, yes, it
0: was, yeah.
1: Yeah, like, it's been a crowded year, right? And I was just thinking, we're being a bit mean to Miranda Tapsell and Wayne Blair and we <laughs> didn't have a big Indigenous-themed <laughs> film. I mean, top End Wedding's right there and it's fucking delightful, you know? Like, mm. I really love that film. And also, um, but, well, you
0: mentioned uh, Dylan River before and I, I, I was just thinking we had Fink there and back, which I think is released on Thursday, uh, which is his documentary about the Fink uh, uh, desert race. So. Like, there's always stuff out there. I think sometimes in a crowded marketplace,
1: um, it's easy to kind of forget stuff. Like I, I actually blanked on Top End Wedding. I'm so sorry, Wayne and uh, and company, but I, you know, I was just focused on Indigenous drama. And it's like, no, 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 there are, an indi- there are Indigenous voices being made. They're making really cool films. Um, maybe not Dirty Dancing, but, uh, you know, Top End Wedding's fantastic. And I think that that did well at the box office, didn't it?
2: It did well, yeah. Five, six million bucks. So not as big as they probably hoped, but, it was still, you know, moderate success. And, and you know, I've spoken to uh, a few black writers from America who have watched Top M Wedding and they absolutely loved it. They loved seeing an Indigenous story, especially a romantic comedy uh, directed by Indigenous filmmakers featuring Indigenous people and, and celebrating uh, Indigenous culture. They enjoyed seeing that kind of thing because it's so rare to see a positive, hopeful, joyous film about indigenous life so often you know as much as I do love Sweet Country and and, you know Goldstone and Mystery Road and all that kind of stuff they are so often uh, Santam Mm -hmm. Delilah as well they're so often so depressing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so maudlin and it's like we need to have more of those positive films like Top End Wedding Mm -hmm. Uh, so one can only
0: hope I guess Uh, I'm really fanning on Dylan River at the moment Uh, I'd love to see him take on a big feature film uh, maybe with his dad as a cinematographer, maybe. And um, you know, even though Dylan's quite handy with the camera, having shot uh, most of Sweet Country. Um, I'd love mm. to see those two work together on a feature film where Dylan's the actual director and and uh, and Warwick maybe is the cinematographer. Um, so so despite the lack of Indigenous Australian filmmakers this year, uh, Indigenous stories were strongly represented uh, in one of the year's most talk about films, which you two have both both mentioned, and that is of course uh, the Nightingale. Um, and I want to talk about this film a bit because I can't remember the last time an Australian film was was talked about this much in in the media. Um, uh, This film absolutely destroyed me And uh, Andrew and Travis I know that you've both heard this story before But um, after attending a media screening uh, At which there were some very disgruntled audience walkouts and i meant some some screaming walkouts um i went home sat on the end of my bed and i just cried my eyes out um firstly because of the controversial baby death which hit me like a lightning bolt and uh, two because i was frustrated with the with myself and my education that i was so ignorant to this uh, shocking time in australia's history I mean, I know what happened and uh, I know it was shocking and beyond terrible, but to see it on screen uh, portrayed in such a realistic light felt like something new for me. Um, So, Andrew, what did you make of The Nightingale? Did, Did it hit you as hard as it hit me and obviously other people?
2: No, it didn't, um, and I'm probably one of the, the the few who aren't as high on this film as everybody else is. I, I thought it was a very good film and thought it was very well made, directed, and uh, certainly the themes are very salient and, and needing discussion and exploring, but uh, because of the nature of the story and because of the way that Jennifer Ken had set it up, I can't help but Fear that the actual points in it, the, the discussion about colonialism, that the, the terrible aspects of Australia's history that are explored in there, are being muted and shoved down by the fact that there are two really brutal instances of rape in the first half hour of the film, and then, as you were saying, that 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 baby's death, and then you know another hour later after all of this, there's another rape scene, and I, I'm you know there is a point to those sexual assaults in the film. There is a point because they're furthering the narrative, Mm -hmm. but I fear that the discussion around the film is so focused on those acts Mm -hmm. that everything else that it's trying to say is getting lost in the mix. Mm -hmm. And that's not the film's fault uh, at all, Um, but I couldn't help but walk away from the film feeling like I'd been beaten to a pulp and I couldn't tell exactly what I was supposed to do with the mess that so was left over. And whereas In comparison, Sweet Country left me feeling like I was beaten to a pulp, but I could actually explore the debris and make sense of it in a lot of different ways. And, you know, the the narratives are different for sure, but they still hit thematic points that are very, very similar. Um, So, yeah, unfortunately Nightingale didn't hit me as much as it did everybody else, but I am glad that it's being talked about in the way that it is uh, so extensively around the world. I just wish the discussion
0: was more about the effects of colonialism in australia mm. um travis uh, uh d- can audiences be blamed uh, for not wanting to sit through um the nightingale
1: no because like not every film's for everyone and i don't expect anyone to sit through anything which m- they may find confronting oh you, sh- you should watch stuff which challenges you but mm. if it's really going to trigger you and i'm not using that in a light way i mean actually upset you in a very visceral way then yeah they you're not beholden to sit through a film which contains a lot of rape, a lot of violence against women and children and whatnot. Um, I think the the furore around the film was uh, pretty artificial. I think it was more or less a beat up by a fairly craven and uh, uncreative media landscape, which is beholden to, to clickbait and <laughs> – and, uh, you know, the attention economy where instead of engaging with the deeper themes of the film like you would with you know, a discerning and intelligent audience, you just have to go, like, oh, people are walking out and, oh, it's so dark and it's so violent and it's so rapey. And it's like, well, maybe you're a fuckwit for just focusing on that. Maybe you're not smart enough for this film. You're not I don't mean not tough enough. It's OK not to be tough enough. Maybe you're just not fucking smart enough, mm-hmm. which I'm seeing more and more of in the current climate. Um, I'm going on a bit of a tear here.
0: No, no, keep uh, going. Keep going, please. <laughs>
1: Uh, it's an extraordinary film. I think Jennifer Kent's one of the best we've had come along in years, um, and I, I my hats off to her because like she could have she could have gone off and made a Blumhouse film, and I'm not disparaging Blumhouse. I love that shit. She could have done you know another little sort of horror film. It, and The Barbadook's great, but it's still well within those genre confines. And instead, she made her uh, her second film one of the most controversial and perhaps inevitably. Uh, talked about uh, films of, of this or any other year in the Australian cinema. So, you know, fantastic. And she did the work, okay? Mm. Like, well, There's always a lot of conversation about who's allowed to tell which stories. But I don't think you can look at um, The Nightingale and go, oh, well, she's half-arsed it, okay? That's clearly a work of, of crystal clear artistic intent. Like she mm. knows exactly what she's doing. She's done the cultural consultancy. She has spoken with Indigenous people uh, who – have connection to the events it's difficult to say people whose ancestors were connected to the events because we all know what happened to the indigenous population in Tasmania, or we should. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, it's, it's an extraordinary piece of work. Unfortunately, the, the the audience for extraordinary pieces of work is dwindling. Mm. Um, so, you know, we have to support them. That's why, you know, we're better off talking about films like this than, you know, fucking Star Wars or the next Marvel or whatever the hell's coming along because those films don't need our support or even our commentary. These films do. Mm. But, yeah, I think um, – How can I put it? Look, I read a lot of history. So nothing in The Nightingale shocked me on a factual level. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm kind of across this. Uh, and So I was happy to see a film which showed uh, British colonial history in Australia as I understood it to be, as violent, as shocking, as confronting, as completely inhuman. Uh, So I'm glad that that sort of – in the cultural record now in a way which is more accessible than any dozen dry history books, mm. um, because people will watch something over reading something nine times out of 10. I think that's kind of unarguable at this point. Um, so like, you yeah, know, the, the victory in the Nightingale is that now it exists, it's there, and we can point at it and go, well, well look, there it is. And, uh, if you think it's, you know, over the pudding, well, here's a book to tell you that it's not. Um, so yeah, like, Thank you, Jennifer Kent. Uh, it's extraordinary.
0: Um, here's some of what Jennifer uh, had to say about the violence in the Nightingale. You
4: mm. know, it's a war film. I mean, whoever said to Spielberg, go and tone down the beginning of Saving Private Ryan? Yes. No one. Yes. Because it's a war film. Mm. Mm. And this is also a war film. Mm. Mm. And it's something very important to witness. Uh, you know, it's never, been, it's never been talked about in this form in a feature film. Uh, the Black War, what's referred to by historians as the Black War, has been largely ignored. It's not even uh, viewed as a war by our government, mm. but it was. Mm. And so, you know, you can't go soft on that because a lot of people lost their lives. A culture was intentionally, uh, you know, it was one culture set out to destroy another culture,
0: mm.
4: and it's something that people don't understand. Mm. And so, you know, my hope is that a bit of light can be shed on that um, history mm. and that we can at least understand what, what we did or what, from a white perspective, what my ancestors, whether they were direct or not, what what we did. So, mm. mm. um, yeah, it's not, it's not about being, going soft there. You can't. And, I mean, you know, it's not... So I think some people are thinking that the film is just full of exploding heads or... <laughs> You know, gratuitous violence. It's not every yeah. bit of violence in the film has a point. Yes, yes. And there's a point to it, and there's an emotional impact mm-hmm.
0: to it. Andrew, is there anything more that you wanted to add to that?
2: Um... Look, I think I think one of the the points that, and I say this as a white man, uh, so I might be you know I, I might be stoking a fire that I shouldn't be stoking by saying this, but one of the the benefits of having a film like this directed and written and focused on a white woman, uh, like the Nightingale is, um, is that it does make it just that little bit more accessible for, you know the 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 middle-class or upper-class white folks to, to head along to go and watch this film because it's like they're still learning a lesson, but they're doing so through the perspective of a white person who maybe theoretically they might be able to relate to a little bit more. And that sounds like a terrible thing, but it's, um you know, unfortunately uh, we still have a hell of a lot of racism in the world mm. and a lot of that comes along in the form of, well, I'm not going to see a film with uh, black leads because, you know, who wants to hear their story? So maybe the fact that it focuses on a white Irish girl might
0: help be an entry point for some people. Mm-hmm. That's my final thought, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so let's move on then from uh, one of the most uh, – one of the <laughs> um, most. Uh,
1: I, I wanted to add something.
0: No, go for it, go for it. it
1: if I may, uh, on, on top of Andrew's people are shit argument, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that – Festival programmers should have fucking order known better than to put on the Nightingale without forewarning what they knew to be their typical audience. Mm. Because we know the sort of people who turn up to opening night screenings at festivals for big prestigious Australian films. And they're generally fairly well-to-do, artistically inclined boomers who maybe just want to see something like, oh, I don't know, Palm Beach, and instead <laughs> got punched in the goddamn face of the Nightingale
0: until many of them fled the cinema in horror. So are you um, saying that this was intentional on the on the uh, festival's behalf?
1: I, I think you could read intent there if you wanted to. I'm just saying that perhaps you got to read your audience, particularly in a situation like that where people in a festival will go and see things sort of, you know, on a punt, like sight unseen. It's like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Oh, yeah, I like the Duke, Let's go have a look. Mm, and, you know, films are going in a festivals unrated as well, so you don't have the rating information, and that's as it should be. Mm-hmm. But perhaps a little more care in making sure that people had an idea of what they were going to get hit with when they stepped into the cinema mm-hmm.
0: might have been a good idea. Um, okay, well, let's move on from it um, uh, because I don't want to talk about uh, one subject for too long. But uh, so let's move on from uh, from one film that was a huge critical success to another film that was a huge box office success. Um, uh, none of them were bigger than this film, which shot out of the gates, uh, overtook everything else on the track and galloped to box office glory to become the highest grossing Australian film of the year. And that's uh, Rachel Griffiths directing debut Ride Like a Girl. Um, Andrew, does this film's box office dominance mean that it was actually any good? And I start no. with you because I know that you just wrote a review for it.
2: <laughs> no, not at all. It's um, no. We as we should know and and look at the uh, the box office success of uh, the Transformers films, which um, <laughs> for four of those films were the most successful films of those years. Um, you know, quality does not equal success and i think that is clear with this film uh that quality does not equal success uh, and you know the cynical side of me really reared its head out when i watched this film and i came to it late right at the end of its theatrical run mostly because i was not so keen to watch it um because i had gotten the impression from the trailers and the advertising that it was going to be more of a marketing campaign for how good is horse racing mm. and that's what i got from the film yeah. and there was no introspection no you know certainly you know watching Fire uh way back when which is a great film and that is a film which you know is about a long time ago and it wasn't made all that long time ago as well uh where they certainly don't look on the racing industry in a favorable way in all of the for all of the film mm-hmm. you know they they do highlight that horses get injured and you know they die and there's trauma and things like that whereas here in ride like a girl that kind of thing is dealt with like huh no worries you know you're like a kid who's just fallen over in the playground it's no big deal get yourself up and brush yourself off and And that I thought was irresponsible, and especially for it being a, a, you know, a film where coming out around the the Melbourne Cup, where the, you know, it was one of the lowest attended Melbourne Cups in all time, and certainly, um, well, not all time, but in recent years, uh, and the campaign for Nup to the Cup uh, was certainly uh, a lot bigger than uh, it has been in recent years. uh, I felt it was irresponsible to not include that kind of introspective look into one of the most profitable industries in Australia.
0: Mm-hmm. Um Travis, it's it's without doubt uh, you know that the best biopic of the year goes to Acute Misfortune. But but why does Australia struggle to make interesting and honest biopics? Why can't we be honest with our biopics?
4: Uh
1: because we put people up on a pedestal, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um like acute misfortune is great and no fuckers saw it.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, <laughs> and everyone went to see um Ride Like a Girl. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I don't know, like We have a really, really weird relationship with our celebrities and our heroes, Um, and it's part lionization and part tall poppy syndrome. It's really weird. Um, Yeah, that's a really good question, man. Mm. Uh, I mean, I liked um, Ride Like a Girl considerably more than Andrew did, mm. while still acknowledging that it is, it's horse racing propaganda, right? Mm. And I think, you know, once you know that uh, the film has the support of the racing industry, then you know that certain things are going to get addressed and certain things are not. And if they didn't have the support of the racing industry, well, maybe the film doesn't get made. So it's a bit of a compromised uh, work while still functioning as a really crowd-pleasing, rousing, you know, uh, hero takes on all odds, you know, rags to riches kind of story or riches to riches, really. I mean, look at that fucking fan. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of money in horse racing. Let's not pretend there isn't. <laughs> no. uh, uh, yeah, I, it's like, – it's, I think that particularly in the current fraught and hellish uh, year of our Lord, that escapism is really important to audiences and being able to believe in the myth of, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, if you do the right thing, you'll come out on top. I think our more complex and interesting uh, public figures, uh, as depicted in Acute Misfortune, Mm. uh, do not fit that narrative, in which case they kind of turn off the audience and we, well, we get the box office results that we, we have seen. And I... I totally agree with Andrew that box office is a pretty piss-poor metric of quality, Yes, but it is a pretty good metric of what kind of films are going to be easier to get made.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: So, yeah, I don't know. Like, if you're going to show someone a sort of grim tale of an artist fucking falling apart and basically destroying himself, but more or less locked into one location, like maybe people aren't going to react to that as strongly as this big, rousing, colourful, well-cast with familiar faces, you know, uh, racing drama where, you know. Directed by one of our great it. actors. Yeah, yeah, and she's awesome. You know, Griffiths mm-hmm. does really well and, and like it's incredibly well directed. Like mm-hmm. it, it is stunningly well put is together it? on a technical level. <laughs> no, it really is in terms of like classical filmmaking is not easy to do well. People think it is because we've seen so many well-made classical films so that's over the course of a 120 years of cinema. But to actually put together racing sequences like that shot in a way that, you know, Sort of give you a rush of blood and get the heart going, and you're engaged, even though you know the result because you know it's a historical fact. Uh, you know that is very difficult to do. Let that me just say this. Let,
0: let me just say this. Uh, Rachel didn't direct the racing sequences.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, it's second. You know, that's yeah, that, that makes sense. But um, you know, but it's the film itself still functions on that level. You know, it's mm-hmm. really well put together. It, it, it functions as a. Perfectly good, perfectly respectable, upbeat three star crowd
0: pleaser, mm. and that's what it is. And um, I really, really struggled with this film. I, I, I honestly, I felt like walking out about halfway through because I was so pissed off. There is so, so many controversies surrounding the Michelle Payne story and none of them were mm. touched on, none of them. And uh, and this is one of the most inspiring sporting stories in Australian sports history. Uh, this is the first uh, female to ever win the Melbourne Cup and it's delivered to us with as much meat as a fucking Vegemite sandwich and it pissed me right off. Uh, so apart uh, from not being inspired by it, I was, I was also pissed off about the shameless betting tutorial towards the end, um, <laughs> which, which had Shane... Boy- character teaching Magda Shabansky how to bet. Now that that really pissed me off because I know that kids will be watching this film with their parents, and uh, I like to have a little flutter every now and then. I especially like to have a bet on the footy, um, but uh, I know that some people really, really struggle with gambling, and that's a real problem in this country. Um, did, did this bother either of you two?
2: Yes, it did. Yeah, very much so. And and exactly that, because, you know, people do have issues with gambling and, and it's a major issue, especially over east. I, I'm sure that, Trav, you probably see it a lot more than we do over here in Perth. But, you know, I've gone across to Melbourne and Sydney when it's been at the height of like a sporting season and it's intoxicating. It is just wall to wall. Sports and TAB and sports bet and Tom Waterhouse and all that kind of stuff and it's and it's intoxicating and I, I don't need a film to give me a dot point guide on how to lose my money mm-hmm. you know I, I can do that quite successfully myself um, I don't need a film to to give me a guide uh, as to how to do that so I felt I felt that was a little bit it, it was. Yeah, it was irresponsible. But I I think that, you know, there's a lot of things with this film that I think are irresponsible. That, yes, I did enjoy the climactic race itself. That is quite nice and good. Um, And I can see how people are getting swept up by it. But I guess I want a little bit more from. Uh, my film. I want it to be a little bit more introspective and, and aware of what it's actually presenting. And there is none of that here. And, and and I think that's probably the more the thing that frustrates me the most is I expected so much more from Rachel Griffiths. I expected, you know, she is somebody who has protested. She is a very vocal person. She is very, very outward in, in, in explaining her point of view. And then to deliver this Film that feels so deliberately uh, somebody else's point of view felt irresponsible. And the same for Teresa Palmer, who's a vegan. Mm, I'm like, mm-hmm. how, 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 and why? Um, but the more that I get my fingers into it, the more I get angry. And mm. and yeah,
0: I'm disappointed. <laughs> um, uh, one thing that I did really enjoy about the film was Teresa Palmer's performance, which you just uh, you just mentioned Teresa there, Andrew, and um, and also the performance of uh, Stevie Payne as himself um his casting didn't sit well with me at first and especially at the beginning of the film where he's at school and is kind of like eyeing off the younger girls at school and you know and laughing with them and this is an almost 40 year old man uh playing a 15 16 year old um so that didn't sit well with me at first but but he's actually not a bad little actor and um and here's what uh rachel told me about stevie's casting so tell us about uh casting stevie and whether you had any other actors in mind
6: i did i had an actor out of sydney um He's worked a lot. He's done a lot of short films. I'm not sure of his feature work, but Mm. he's um, incredibly attractive, good-looking, very funny, um, killer, killer timing, killer deliveries, um, and very confident. Mm. He's done a lot of stuff with bus stop films. Um, So he was going to be my Mm. go-to. And then I heard Stevie wanted to play himself, and my, um, you know, my... What I thought would be the real challenge of casting the actor that I had in mind was um, being able to kind of showcase Stevie's professional skills with the horses Um, because, you know, his inclusion in this film isn't tokenistic. I mean, yes, he's the (laughs) funniest, he has the best lines. But also on that day it was such a breakthrough moment to see somebody like Stevie working at the top of their game responsible for millions of dollars worth of horse flesh. Um, and that was so meaningful for so many families um, and people with um, d- different abilities. Um, so I, I was wondering how I would be able to um, get you know, this other actor so comfortable to that would, would really celebrate um, the professional skills of mm. Stephen.
0: Um, so, so that brings me on to, uh, on to the next topic here, and, uh, and, and that's um, disabilities in, in film, and especially in Australian film at the moment. Um, and it's interesting because uh, in that little grab that I just played, Rachel mentions bus stop films. Uh, do either of you two follow bus stop?
6: Yeah, yeah, I do, I'm yeah! yeah.
0: Fantastic, and uh, um, I recommend that all of our listeners check them out because there's some terrific actors coming through there. Um, basically, bus stop gives people with intellectual disabilities uh, film school experience. Um, so, 2019 saw a bunch of Australian films released featuring incredible actors who just so happen to have a disability, uh, whether intellectual or physical. Um, We had RJ Mitty in Standing Up for Sunny, um, the multi-award winning actor, writer and producer Daniel Monks, who wrote and starred in Pulse. We had Stevie Payne in Ride Like a Girl. Um, And then you've got Paralympian, a circus performer and artist Sarah Hubolt in Reflections in the Dust, and uh, gold medal winning Olympian and actor Chris Bunton, uh, who I reckon gives one of the best performances of the year in Kairos. Um, I'm not sure whether either of you two have seen that. No, I didn't get a chance to, no, unfortunately. It, it comes out on Thursday. Check it out. Um, and Chris also obviously stars in uh, Abe size Little Monsters um, uh, following his breakthrough performance in Down Under a few years ago. Um, mm. Travis, it feels to me as though uh, Australia is long past the days of casting non-disabled actors in, uh, uh, as characters with disabilities, and I guess this is catching on around the world as well. Um, but I think it's uh, refreshing to see, right? Yeah, absolutely. I
1: actually, I bumped into Chris at the launch of uh, Mr. in Between Season 2 and he bailed me up. He he bailed me up and recited all of Oliver Reed's dialogue from Gladiator. And I was wrapped. (laughs) It was just wonderful. Fantastic. He's an awesome guy. Uh, Yeah, yeah. No more cripping up on Australian screens. Why don't we just commit to that, hey? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, look it's not that we're suddenly more interested in telling disabled stories. I think we've always had an interest in telling the stories of disabled protagonists because it's, it's presented as a, a you know, this, this hurdle to overcome. And then when they do overcome their limitations, Oh, what a victory it is. I'm thinking of, you know, Daniel day Lewis in uh, my left foot yes. is probably the error example. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but we kind of, representation is a very big thing now and people being able to tell their own stories or at least be in their own stories is a very, very big thing now. And, uh, you know, the industry is reacting to that, which is fantastic. Uh, so disabled actors or actors with disabilities, um, do have more opportunities now. doesn't mean it's easier to tell the stories or make the actual work, but I think that when stories with people with disabilities at the forefront are getting made, then these, Right now, you you would have like just as a producer, as a, a casting director, you would have to be pretty insane to try and cast a non-disabled actor in a disabled role, mm-hmm. uh, or you know even a in other areas. Like there was that big blow up where Scarlett Johansson was going to play a transgender man, and that kind of the, the world reacted to that appropriately. Um, you will see that the same sort of reaction if you know suddenly. Uh, an actor du jour is like, and I'm going to pretend that I've got cerebral palsy. And it's, oh no, why don't we just get one of these fantastic actors who have cerebral palsy and we'll just plug them in there. And by the way, their career just got a boost Mm. because, and here's the thing, right? Non-disabled actors can play disabled roles. It is more difficult for disabled actors to play non-disabled roles. Mm -hmm. So when you give a disabled role to a non-disabled actor, you are, very, very much taking an opportunity from the disabled community. And I, I, I'm actually quite impressed with the way over the past yeah maybe 18 months or so that the Australian industry has really sort of not addressed it in a very vocal way, but
0: mm-hmm. seems to have just sort of quietly gone, right, this is how we're going to go moving forward. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yes, it really mm-hmm. does. And you know what's interesting about those uh, films that I just mentioned, uh, five or six of them, is that three of, three of them are non-Screen Australia funded. These are independent filmmakers who are actually going out there and doing it without the encouragement of, um, of Screen Australia.
1: Yeah, so then the question becomes, like, uh, how do they get an audience, mm. uh, which is always interesting. And obviously it's often guys like us just flying the flag and hoping to get an extra bum in an extra seat. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, like, it would be interesting. It would be great to see Screen Australia perhaps do more in that area. Mm. Uh, just because, you know, the the only thing better than a a film with a disabled protagonist is a film with a disabled protagonist and a high profile on the Australian stage. Yes. Uh, So, yeah, so it's not just about getting the films made, but it's making sure that they have the industry and cultural and distro support that an Australian film should be able to expect.
0: Mm. Um, Andrew, uh, did any of those performances stand out for you this year? And uh, and if so, uh, why? Um,
2: well, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Standing Up for Sunny. Mm. I think it's one of the, the best films of the year. Uh, genuinely hilarious and genuinely deserving of a, a wide audience. And it frustrates me to no end that it's been kind of just shafted off to the side for, you know, fan force screenings, which are great. You know, at least it's getting out there for an audience. Um, but I had really hoped that that film would be one that would uh, have a wide release because it's genuinely hilarious <laughs> and it has a good – disabled cast in it yes. and you know, I interviewed the director the other day and he mentioned something that was quite um both ironic and a little bit uh frustrating in the sense that he's trying to get his next film done and uh, they're saying, you know, the the I think it's uh, Screen Australia basically saying to him, well, you know, it's all well and good that you've got a script there, but we would like to have more diversity and more representation of Sydney in the in the th- the, the film. <laughs> and he's like, well, hang on, <laughs> I just made a film
0: that is literally full of diversity and shows all of Sydney. Isn't there um, a scene in Standing Up for Sunny set under the Sydney Harbour Bridge? <laughs> I believe so. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> and so it's like, I, I was like, I was as stunned as he was. And mm. so, you know, it, it is great to see this kind of stuff occurring. And it's great to see, you know, independent filmmakers, people on the fringes uh, getting up and telling these stories because, you know, if they don't, then it's not guaranteed that anybody else will. And that's, I guess, one of the things which I think will be interesting to see where Australian films go forward mm. is you know, it seems to be that a lot of the independent filmmakers, the guys making it on um, fumes, basically, are the ones that are telling the more exciting stories that are pushing those boundaries of diversity. And that is what thrills me. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm excited to see what happens in the future. Um Well, the,
1: fr- the fringe leads the future, right? Like, that's how mm-hmm. it works. Like, it's always the guys on in the sort of indie interstitial spaces, and this is whether it's film or music or literature or whatever, it's always the people who are out there sort of doing stuff which the mainstream isn't who are going to tell you what's going to happen in the next five years. So the idea that there are indie filmmakers doing uh, disability-themed films with actually disabled actors at the moment p- says to me that going forward, we're going to see that sort of dragged into the mainstream and become normalized, which in this case is a good thing. Yes. Um, sometimes when when mainstream culture... Uh, kind of cannibalises uh, fringe culture, it's a bad thing, because things I like become boring,
0: like Marvel. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But in this case, it can only be a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I just want to mention uh, Daniel Monks in uh, Pulse again. What an incredible performance he gives there. Um, Going back, uh, looking back on Australia's, uh, uh, you know, on Australian films past, uh, have we miscast these kind of roles previously in in any other films? Uh, The films that actually really stuck out to me was luke ford in black balloon and then he also played a character with a mental disability in uh, whatever works uh, but he was terrific in those roles He was a, he, he gave incredible performances but have we ever miscast these kind of roles before that you can think of ah uh, i'm sure that we have but nothing's really coming to mind
2: unfortunately um but i just want to add on to your your mention of daniel monks there was a sbs series called perspective shift which yes. focused on three different uh people who live with disabilities and they uh, it was fantastic the first episode is about Daniel Monkson it's all about the production of Pulse and I highly recommend people watch that because uh, you know he worked on that for so long and for so many years to get that working and you know it is a it is a project of love and passion and you know the proof is in the pudding, it's, it's a fantastic film, mm. but it was hard won as well. And so, yeah, while I can't answer your question directly about who I think should have been cast properly, um, that's what I would recommend
0: people look at to mm. see how difficult it is for people with disabilities to get their stories told. Yes. um, Here's some of what uh, RJ Mitty had to say about diversity on Australian screens versus uh, the American industry. Diversity on Australian screens is thriving. Does it feel like that in, in the US?
3: I, yes, yes and no. I, I feel that like there is a big driving force, but I, I find we, we need more, more community support. You know, it's one thing about here in Australia is, is when you get Australia made movies and, and the disability has diversity or, or whatever it may be, you get a lot of, of support in the community and in the film industry here in America. It's, it's so generalized, um, and there's so much. It, it's it, it. They they're not matching the same, the same level of quality.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And but they're hitting the quantity. And it's it's it's. I, I see it's working. And it's changing. But we we have a long way to go. And, and and it's it's really cultivating this whole new industry of how people view films, how people make them. To to the people that that. Are newly involved to the people that have been doing it for seventy years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's a it's a it's a way of life. And it's it's a new it's a new adventure, and it's great to see so much so much diversity in art. But we need to also remember that we we don't have to focus on these diverse social aspects of everything. Mm-hmm. But don't forget to enjoy your movie. Um, we cast Kirk Douglas as
1: a one-legged man. In what? In The, in the Man from Snowy River.
0: <laughs> oh, really? <laughs>
1: Spur the because he has a dual role right, but one of his roles is Spur, the old miner living up in the hills who is in love with Jessica's uh, mother. But his brother, also played by Kirk Douglas, sort of won out, and he's got one leg, so there is a an able-bodied man playing a disabled role in Australian cinema. Well, also, a uh, lot of the uh, there's a lot of uh, disability in the Mad Max. Uh, franchise. Yes, yes, which that's are true. By yeah. and large, able-bodied people. Yes. And and
2: I, I do want to say, as much as I'm praising standing up for Sonny as well, um, one of the side characters, the Samoan who is blind, and unfortunately the, the actor's name is currently escaping me. Uh, um,
0: Italia Hunt. Yeah, he's not blind. No, he's not um yeah.
2: which is fine. Um but the 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 side characters that he encounters along the way are vision impaired. Yes. Um but I guess like if we're if we're signaling out people who could have been cast in certain roles, then that is certainly an area that could have been done. But standing up for Sony does make up for it in a lot of other ways. So you know it it makes a lot of strides forwards, but uh, there's one small stride backwards yes. in a way.
1: Yes. You know, progress not perfection,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got to keep moving forward. Um, speaking of moving forward, uh, good segue, uh, I want to talk about documentaries because 2019 was an incredible year for documentaries. Um, we had not one but two Adam Goods films, The Australian Dream in The Final Quarter. Uh, we had Damon Gamow's That Sugar Film Follow-Up 2040, Susie Q and uh, the very brilliant Happy Sad Man, which I know you loved andrew um and we had think there and back and we had the near perfect fucking film coco a red dog story um uh, i know you two are dog lovers and i think i saw you published a review this morning andrew a very good review yeah
2: i gave (laughs) i saw it yesterday morning and uh i put up a review last night and it is an easy five star film i think it is a Genuine. I I coined the term, which uh, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue very well, but I coined the term that it's a dogster piece. Uh, I think
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's very good. Very clever.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Working hard to try and get on the poster there. Um, But it's uh, (laughs) – I enjoyed it. I loved it. I thought it was a great film. But I also want to point out, like, uh, there are a lot of other documentaries that kind of fell by the wayside that people – that only had small – Small releases And, like, my favourite Australian film of the year, absolutely nobody saw, but that's fine. I'm going to still bang on about it, which is a film called It All Started With a Stale Sandwich. Yes. Yeah. Which is about uh, the Kaldor Arts Project over in Sydney. And I've watched that multiple times. Uh, there is a shortened version on ABC iview, and I've watched that three or four times. It is just a great, great documentary. And these kinds of films just... We've got so many of them that it's inevitable that some of them just slip through the cracks, but it has been a stellar year for them.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Travis, have you seen anything that's really stood out for you?
2: Uh, I haven't seen uh,
1: Coco yet, uh, which is a shame because you guys are raving about it. But I had a beer with Aaron McCann the other night because he was in town. He's one of the co-directors, obviously with uh, Dom Pierce, and he was shitting bullets. He was terrified that people wouldn't like it, and you guys are (laughs) raving about it. So now I've really got to go
0: and see it. (laughs) It is so good, and um, yeah, uh, Aaron. uh, I mean, this film really cements Aaron and uh, Dominic as uh, you know, two of the, the. the great uh filmmakers in this country working right now um it, oh, it's so funny it's hilarious and but it's also heartbreaking as well so i recommend you take your tissues trav because i know you're a you're a huge dog lover
1: yeah and i'm a crier man i cry <laughs> in movies um i i actually didn't see a whole lot of docos this year but i did see both the adam goods docos because i wrote a piece in the latest metro about them mm-hmm. sort of comparing and contrasting because they went who's the whitest guy we can get to talk about these <laughs> Get me Travis Jones! (laughs) Uh, So that was interesting. And I think uh, they're really... Fascinating to watch next to each other. Mm. Um, just in terms of if you're if you're a student of cinema, to look at how two different approaches to the same subject matter can can alter your your understanding of of what happened mm. and how we we mediate fact and truth through through the visual media of of, of film. Um, had a lot of fun with those, and also panicked and and put my 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 draft in really late because I was like, I am not the guy to be writing this. <laughs> also <laughs> about was, football because you're a huge football fan, aren't you?
0: I, I can give half a fuck about organized sports. So. <laughs> um, oh, I've, got, uh, I've got to try to get that piece. I'd love to read it, actually.
3: Yeah,
1: I'll I'll, I'll flick you through a copy, man. I'll you can, sort you out. Um, um so, so yeah, uh, oops, yeah, like it's just been a weird year for me in terms of documentary. Like, I can't think of like all the ones that you've name checked. i my like, oh, I never quite got around to that. Like 2040, which is right in my wheelhouse. I just so have managed to pull together the time to do it because I'm doing this sort of full time. Yes. So I to have to sort of watch what I'm getting paid for. Yes. And sometimes it's like, oh, I just can't get to it, Mm -hmm. Um, which sucks because I want to watch everything. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, I want to, sorry, Matt, to interrupt you because you're running the show here, but (laughs) um, I want to circle out a film that I know that Trav watched and and liked uh, and one that I really liked as well. Another one that kind of, it only appeared at the Melbourne documentary film festival. And I have no idea what is going on with the release for it, but I hope it gets something in 2020. And that's the documentary Luby, which is all about Keith Luby.
3: Mm -hmm. Oh, yes.
2: And that's brilliant. That's a really good documentary, and I hope that it gets some kind of release next year because I absolutely love it. I think it's fantastic. It's in my top ten for the year, and,
0: um, you know, I, I I think it's a great, great film. Now, don't quote yeah, me on yeah. this, but if I remember off the top of my head, SBS have picked it up oh good yeah so it'll be getting a wide release now speaking of releases because in in this day and age you would think documentaries would have more success on streaming services but audiences are flocking to these films at the cinema i mean australian dream uh, was one of the highest grossing australian films of the year and uh, think there and back i mean that opens on thursday but if you haven't bought your tickets already you're going to miss out because uh, they've sold out multiple sessions why are documentaries still so popular with audiences
2: that's a good question. I think because they're they're just people like that slice of life, and there's you know they they want to see interesting stories told with you know humanity and and personal stories told with humanity, and um, you know while you can get that from fictional films or dramatized films, uh, there's nothing that beats real life. And certainly, I think that one of the biggest helps about uh, supporting documentaries around the world has been Netflix has been fantastic for documentaries like there has been a, a wealth of great documentaries on there that are right at people's fingers and I think that has certainly encouraged people to seek out these films and and certainly ABC does a fantastic job of uh, you know minuting these down that's not even a word but they're reducing these f- films down to like a 55 minute runtime so you're still getting the essence of what it is but people are still absorbing them and appreciating them in ways that they haven't done but Mm. certainly Australian audiences have done a really good job of supporting documentaries over the years I mean I look at Sherpa as being something that I didn't expect audiences to go to but when that was out like that that lasted for quite a bit Mm. and there were a lot of people who were enjoying it and Mm. appreciating the same with like the the two Adam Goods documentaries so it's nice to see that these people are
0: engaging with real stories on a wide scale. I think it's got a lot to do with the honesty in these documentaries mm. as well. I mean, and that's what we were talking about before with our biopics and how they lack this honesty. Could you imagine a movie being made about Adam Goods without all of this controversy in it and and this film just focusing on on him being this two-time Brownlow medalist, this uh, two-time premiership winner and that was the film without this other stuff in it?
2: That sounds like you're spaining Ride Like a Girl there, Matt. Um, <laughs>
0: I think we're on to a new topic now, man.
1: <laughs> I think you're right because with documentary, there is a perceived lack of ideological bias. Now, that's not true. Like, we're, we know that, right? Like, all documentaries have a point of view. Subjectivity is always baked into the mix. It's yes. very, like, you know, you, there are differing degrees, but, you know, everything's subjective. Everything's got a point of view. Everything's got a bias. Everyone, everything's got an ideology. But I think the audience can kind of pretend or assume that, that it is lessened in the documentary form. So you kind of know what you're going to get. You kind of, you don't know exactly what you're going to get, but you have this idea that what you're going to see is sort of reflective of the the actual events and in terms of getting off sort of the factual uh sort of record events that you're talking about, um, you know, you can kind of go and fact check that, right? If you're so inclined and if a docker is lying to you, you'll know about it. Mm-hmm. Um you can't really do that with with cinema. You know, if if a if a fictional film has an ideology that it's trying to put in your face, you can sort of react badly to it, but it's difficult to kind of counter. With doco, you kind of go, well, that's that's the way it is. Now, we know this isn't true because we had a doco to Australia a couple years ago called The Red Pill. Mm. And that was a complete piece of shit and a completely biased and counterfactual argument against uh, feminism. Mm. Uh, But that's still got an audience. And the guys who flock to that believe it to be the truth. So documentaries give you uh, kind of a a stronger grip on your own ideology if it's reflected back to you. Mm. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, yeah. definitely.
1: I'm saying, does that make sense a lot today? No, no. Because no. I'm, I'm grappling with something a little sort of heady here. But it's the idea that if there is a documentary and it speaks to you about something you believe in, you can say, well, then what I believe in is true, mm. as opposed to grappling with the idea that, you know, maybe, maybe you're wrong. I don't know. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, but maybe that's why docos are – popular also i like to fall asleep watching nature docos that's just me you know? i'll put on blue world and then just
0: pass out within that attenborough that's great <laughs> people seem to love it uh, andrew is there anything you wanted to add
2: um I, yeah just adding on to that i think that you know certainly for for my uh, reflection in a way uh, as i look at my my favorite australian films of the year there is that a lot of that confirmation bias in a lot of ways and and when i do up my list i tend to do them in a way that i'm like this is what I love, and yes, you may enjoy it, you may not, but this is what really touched me the most. And mm. certainly, you know the documentaries, I mean, I've got five documentaries in my top ten Australian films of the Year list, and they're all reflective of of things that work for me. And I just hope that the the people who do seek them out uh, also have that kind of reflection and and embrace them in the same way because, Uh, you know, there's a universality to these stories that we can all attach to and and appreciate and and find... uh you know, compassion and empathy
0: with, and I hope that uh, a lot of people do that on a wide scale. Mm. Um, last year, backtrack boys director Catherine Scott. Oh, so good. Uh, she was quoted in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald as saying uh, that there's more money in dog food commercials than there is in documentaries, and uh, and that it's never been more difficult to make documentaries in Australia. It's interesting because uh, we're in December now and we've been delivered some of the best documentaries of the last decade in one year, i I believe. Um, uh, I asked Damon Gamow uh, how he found the experience of making documentaries in Australia, and and here's what he told me. Um, How have you found the process of getting your documentaries up and running?
5: Uh, I consider myself incredibly lucky, and I think... um the, the route that we've been able to take is quite rare so I um, was lucky enough to be a part of uh, something called Good Pitch Australia mm. which is where you, 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 you know, choose six films and you pitch to a room full of philanthropists and then if they connect with your film they donate money to help you and we got some money for Sugar Film but also um, with this one we, we raised an extraordinary amount of money for our outreach in this seven minute period and then a lot of the people that were there offered to invest in the film as well so it actually all got funded in about a week which is wow. Um, you know, again, I don't actually say that very often because mm. I, I think that's not fair in a lot of ways. It's not a, 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 an accurate representation. But, mm. yeah, I've got friends that make docos and um, I know mm. how incredibly difficult it is. So I'm very grateful for the opportunities I had. But I, I do think ultimately it's the idea and, and trying to find that zeitgeist feeling of what, what is out there, what are people going to want to see. Mm. Uh, I reckon it's it just takes uh, you know a real effort to think about, especially because you know how long you're going to work on it you have to really love it, mm. but also feel about how what's what are people yearning for at the moment is yep. your story something that's going to connect with people in this moment um, because I think that in that sense you've got a much better I- uh, way of getting it funded and um, that happened with sugar. I, I, I must have gone to 45 different people, knocking on doors and trying to get that mate, but could feel that there was some awareness of this growing, and so a lot of the money came from like liver doctors or, you know, parents that cared about their kids. Really abstract um, places that you wouldn't normally look for money. So it does take a lot of hard work, and, and that's why I have nothing but respect and admiration for, for people that make documentaries because it is definitely the hardest road.
2: I, I do want to add on to that in a way, in, in the sense that Genevieve Bailey, who's currently out there uh, working her guts out, trying to get people to go and see Happy Sad Man. And she's been doing Q&A screenings literally all over the country on, you know, whatever money is left over for that film. And that film was, you know, it, it's it's a film that means a lot to me, but it's a film that, was made on fumes and it, you know, unfortunately there's not very many people who are eager to throw money at a documentary about men's mental health, even though it's one of the biggest issues that we're facing. And, you know, I guess it's a little bit easier to go, oh yeah, climate change, we'll, we'll chuck money at that. And yes, we, you've had the success of that sugar film, but, um, you know, Genevieve Bailey is somebody who is doing it as much as she can on as little as possible. And, Mm -hmm. It's filmmakers like that that I I appreciate a lot, and especially, as you're saying, with Backtrack Boys as well, which uh, is one of the best documentaries of the decade and was made for virtually nothing, but it has such an emotional impact. And those stories will rise up and be celebrated, but I do
0: wish that there was a little bit more funding thrown to them. Mm. Um, I don't want to take anything away from any of these documentary filmmakers, but uh, I work in marketing, and one thing that I've learned is that um, so many people are scared to ask for money. So maybe this mm. might be the case of uh, Damon uh, just having the confidence to go to these um, uh, these institutions and actually ask for the cash. I mean, we, we don't know what Genevieve's done to, to fund her film, whether she went and asked for money. She might have just uh, gone out there and made the film on her own because she um, felt uncomfortable about asking for money. Um, but uh, regardless, I think uh, Damon's a very smart man and, and he picks his topics and subjects um, that, you know, that are about to become a big deal in mainstream media, like uh, like the dangers of sugar and um, climate change for for example, um, but uh, let's move on to uh, independent films because it's been a huge le- uh, year for indie films. Uh, um, Andrew, I know you're a huge supporter of the uh, the independent Australian film scene. Um mm. despite all the negativity that we 're constantly fed each year about the dire state um, of a seemingly strong industry, I mean, independent filmmakers continue to lead the charge and be the change that this industry needs. Um, you've got Lucy Coleman, who spent $3,000 making Hot Mess, and that's a terrific film. Trav, did you catch that one, by the way? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's so good. um And then yeah. you've got uh, Suburban Wildlife, um, which was the indie darling of the film festival scene in Australia, and, and also uh, quite a bit overseas. Um, you've got Angus Watts and Heath Davis, who delivered us Locusts, uh, all privately funded, um uh, although i think there might have been some screen australia funding in in post production but um uh, and then you've got luke sullivan who followed up his great debut you're not thinking straight with reflections in the dust uh, jace uh, picard gave us this bonkers but uh, very topical uh, film called fragmentary um you two should seek that out <laughs> and um <laughs> and uh, also uh, ted wilson uh, finally got his sbs release with under the cover of cloud um travis screen australia's main purpose seems to be to create jobs not to make films but to create jobs and while independent filmmakers continue to be the backbone of our uh, of our industry so do you see that being a good balance or would you like to see things changed in terms of more money being spent making smaller budget films oh christ how long have you got <laughs>
1: <laughs> go for it it's a- it's a very difficult question, isn't it? So, on the one hand, um, like it's hmm. so Screen Australia is there to make sure we have a functioning uh, film industry, to make sure that uh, our own stories are being told, and to make sure that people working within the industry can, you know, basically put a roof over their heads and feed their fucking kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's important. And in doing that, they do tend to be resistant to experimental, to boundary pushing, to genre redefining, or just to genre cinema in general, Um, which kind of leaves it up to the indie guys to kind of go out there and kind of apprentice themselves doing their own films and then maybe make their way up through the, uh, the funding ziggurat. And I've watched, and I know you guys have watched, Countless filmmakers go through that process, yeah? I'm like, I'm not alone there. No. (laughs) Uh, um, So on the one hand, like, yes, we need Screen Australia to support emerging Australian filmmakers. On the other hand, yeah, we kind of need these indie freaks out there doing stuff like Reflections in Dust because – you know, the, the whole importance of that is that it's a film that screen Australia would never fucking fund. You know what I mean? Like we've, we got to have guys who are going to look at the mainstream, look at the Orthodox and go, well, fuck that. I'm going to be over here doing my thing. If you don't like it, fuck you, which Sullivan does to an incredible degree. Like mm-hmm. that guy is belligerent. Yes. And I love it. <laughs> um, so yeah, like you, you can't have one without the other, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so you, you have to have that Orthodox structure that we kind of, rip strips off of but know that we have to have it in order to have like the opposite of this kind of wild west kind of indie scene over here where you're going to get your under the cover of cloud you're going to get hot mess you're going to get stuff like that made on the smell of an oily rag mm-hmm. um which is going to crack jokes or address themes or just just shoot things in a way which you know um your more established filmmakers i might as well pull crib stenders his name out of the hat just for the hell of it mm-hmm. um aren't gonna do that anymore because he is sort of Australia's most prolific and probably well-respected director right now. But Stenders is a great example of someone who started doing really weird, little, personal, odd films like Boxing Day and Blacktown Mm. and is now off doing fucking Danger Close, The Battle of Long Tan. So Mm. he is an example of the process working. Mm. Now, of course, there's a bit of survivor bias going on in there because not everyone who starts out in the wild sort of weeds of of the indie world is going to wind up. At the you know, actor award red carpet pinnacle, mm. there is, of course, you know, there's going to be a, a rate of attrition, but this is kind of how it works. Mm, and, yeah. you know, if you're going to be indie and you're going to appreciate indie stuff, then you kind of have to embrace the fact that indie is indie and indie gets a certain indie audience mm. and it's indie fundy, funding, which is fuck all, mm. but you get to make indie films. And, you know, and, you know, it's like, you know, <laughs> The reward is the job, okay? Uh, what's so great about being independent? Well, I get to be independent. That's it. That's, that's the whole shebang. All right? All right. No, no monkey on my back. I get to make my fucking movie. I don't have to sit through fucking development meetings with assholes at scream west for fucking eight months and then get told I'm not getting funding. Uh, fuck that. I'll be over here making my movie. But – If you go through that development process and deal with all these fucking suits and fucking shave all the rough edges off your film until it looks like every other fucking thing which is out in the cinema, you get more money to spend on it. And you maybe get to put a down payment on a house and your kid gets to go to a better school or maybe you just get to buy
0: new shoes. What the fuck ever. And then you get to go off and make a movie for Netflix. There
2: you go.
1: But that's the payoff, right? Uh, Zach Yildish is another great example who made fucking tons of little micro budget uh, indie films, you know, like the actress and shit like that before, you know, he kind of cracked the big time or the, the semi big time because it didn't do as well as everyone expected it to with um, these final hours. And now he's an established filmmaker. Now he has a career. Now he's making, as you said, movies for Netflix. But, you know, this is the process. It's yin and yang. All right? like right. They've all got to be in the mix. And there's kind of no real point complaining about sort of the, the hardship of being indie when we know why that exists and we know why certain filmmakers wind up in that sphere and all complaining about the sort of rigorous and soul crushing fucking development process of, of your, your state and national funding bodies. Cause we know why that exists and that kind of exists really. So that when you get to make a film at that level and, uh, you know, make your fucking opus with Screen Australia funding. That the crew on there are going to get paid because mm-hmm. to bring it full circle, it is about keeping the people in the industry kind of fed and clothed. Mm-hmm. So there
0: we go. There's mm-hmm. there's a thesis for you. I think I got somewhere with that. You, <laughs> um, uh, Andrew, how would you rate uh, uh, 2019's independent film releases? As a whole, yeah.
1: Follow up that one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> uh, look, I mean, there's there's there has been some of the best uh, independent films uh, coming out of Australia this year. As you mentioned, uh, Hot Mess is one of my favourites. Three thousand bucks to make that. Subur- Suburban <laughs> Wildlife, four thousand bucks to make that. Mm-hmm. Ch- Chocolate Oyster as well. I don't know how much that cost, but it cost. Virtually nothing. Yeah. Um, uh, Me and my left brain as well, which is a, a great little romantic comedy. Um, Alex Lycos, uh basically sent himself broke uh, traveling that film around Australia as well. And uh, the irony is, is that all of these films would have fucking thrived in the nineties. Mm-hmm. They would have flourished <laughs> in the nineties, and people would have gone, "These are the new Soderbergs" and uh, all that kind of stuff. And and the industry has just changed and you know it's great to see that these people are still out there making these films and yes we all want to be paid and we all want to you know make sure that the people working on the films are getting paid but you know lucy Coleman is now over in la able to actually shop around her work and get people interested in what she's doing and that's great uh and and you know for some people that is a calling card and for others like alex who uh again put so much money and so much soul and heart into uh getting his film out there and then to have it kind of fall flat in its face in a way um is disappointing and upsetting and you know he's not going to stop trying he's going to try tv next but it's still a case of like there is so much failure with indie films. There is so much disappointment that one has to ask, I guess, in a way, like uh, selfishly, I'm glad that these films still get made, but one has to ask who is the audience for these films when there's going to be 10 people in cinemas around Australia watching these at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, who, who is it for? Uh, is it just for me, you and Trab? Well, fucking great, but, you know. <laughs> thank you.
0: I'll take it. Thank you, guys. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, Like, yeah, I'm happy, but it's mm. like, it's like, I want it to be more. And, and that's just the frustrating thing is that, you know, I guess from a, a, a personal perspective, like I, I write up good reviews for these films and, and stuff like that with the hope that it might get a bum in a seat. Mm. And, Hopefully that works in some regards because I think that most of the exciting stuff that is occurring in Australian film uh, and certainly in international film too is in the independent scene. Uh, It's happening on the fringes, and you know as Travis mentioned before, it's the fringes that change the mainstream and. Hopefully we're in the, 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 the midst of something
0: happening. I don't know what the future is going to be, but I'm real hopeful hopeful that something does happen. Mm. Uh, there's nothing more exciting to me than watching a, a debut feature film and, and seeing this new vision and this new voice in the Australian uh, film industry. Um, so we're at the end of this year, uh, and uh, um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that's still set to be released in cinemas after Thursday, can you? I think I think Thursday's it. Um, Kai Ross, there's there's quite a few coming out on on Thursday. Um, I know that we don't have a big Boxing Day release scheduled like uh, previous years with um, mm. with Blue Dog, uh, Red Dog, True Blue. Um, is there anything else that you guys can think of? I'd, I'd, I think this is it. Oh, what are you looking forward to next year? Oh, let's let's talk about that a bit later because uh, that 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 list is endless. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how would you guys rate this year overall? So, say if you could give it a rating out of five, uh, w- w- what would you give it?
2: uh three and a half from me um i i think it's i think it's certainly a a very good year with a lot of very very good to great films um but uh as i've looked over the past decade of australian films i find that there is possibly a little less that has occurred in uh this year than it has in the past Uh, i think that last year and the year before were some of the best uh years for australian cinema out there um uh, so yeah, three and a half stars for me. I think I think there's a lot of great stuff if you're seeking for it, and there's a lot of uh, not so good stuff if you also see, seeking that too. Mm-hmm. Trav? Yeah,
1: yeah, about the same. Maybe a little higher. Maybe mm. three point seven five. <laughs> Let's get granular. <laughs> um, I don't know, like. So we had like four kind of big tent polish films. Oh, five really. So we got like the Nightingale. We got uh, Danger Close. We got Ride Like a Girl. We got uh, Top Farm End Wedding. Um, and we got top end wedding, um, and that's like five films of that calibre, um, and I mean just in terms of sort of cultural weight, you know, regardless of quality. So we don't have to fight that fucking fight again. Um, you know, having five films like that uh, spread across the year for Australia is like pretty, pretty decent, one. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. I think we got a good spread of documentaries, even if, even if no one went to see them. Um, I think the indie scene is pretty thriving. I think the smaller films are. Uh, you know, did about as well as one could expect. Um, you know, I think the festivals this year were pretty groovy. Uh, yeah, like it's, it could be a lot fucking worse, you know.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> it
1: could be a lot fucking worse. Travis Johns. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I'd, I'd give it a solid uh, a solid four because, uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned five tentpole films and just it just staggers me when I look back on my list of all the Australian films that I've seen this year and I'm up in the 50s. Um, granted of yeah. uh, quite a few of those, are um, next year's releases, but, um, yeah, wow. You know, there's, uh, it, for all of our listeners out there, if you've only seen those five films, then you really need to, to, you know, um, have a scroll through either Stan or, um, or SBS movies or, or whatever you do to watch your films and, and go and check out some more movies. Um, so Travis, you just mentioned the films that we're looking forward to seeing next year. Go ahead. Do you tell us? Yeah.
1: Oh, uh, I, I got skin in the game, so I'm really looking forward to uh, to Roderick's um, The Furnace, yes. if it's still called The Furnace. Yep. Um, yeah, about uh, an Afghan camelier bombing around the
0: goldfields in the 1850s. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that looks fantastic. Uh, Andrew, is there anything that uh, you can think of?
2: Uh, specifically Ivan Sen's film. Um, I'm addicted to his work. I think that he is one of the great Australian filmmakers ever. Uh, he has not really put a foot wrong at all. And Loveland, uh, which has got Ryan Quantin and Hugo Weaving, and it's curiously filmed in uh, Hong Kong, um, sounds to be very, very exciting. And to see uh, you know a sci-fi film directed from an Indigenous voice, uh, they don't fucking exist. <laughs> mm. So I'm beyond excited for that and I love his work. I think that he's,
0: he's just a master. He's one of the best out there. So uh, that is what I'm excited for. Mm. Um, It's interesting because at the start of each year, I write my uh, nine films I can't wait to see. And every year there will be a couple of those films that actually lag and go into the, the next year as well. So two films that I included in my films that I can't wait to see this year, uh, um, Disclosure and, of course, Measure for Measure um mm. now i've seen both of those films and um yeah yeah i really recommend that audiences seek those out but um oh there's a whole bunch of uh, h is for happiness actually isn't official uh, officially released until the end of january um oh, and, good. you know uh, so that's a ne- that's a film next year that that's going to be huge I, I just know it um we all love mm. that film uh, travis i'm sure you, you saw that one no, Miriam, no but that's see... the
1: only film I couldn't make. Yeah, uh, the only finalist I couldn't
0: make at um, Cinefest Oz, and I still haven't seen it. Well, good. You've, so you've got something to look forward to next year. That, that's for sure. Excellent. You know, in the, in the very okay. early parts oh, of next year, um, there's a whole heap of films coming out next year. And um, again, if you're one of those people that's only seen five of those <laughs> films, one, you shouldn't be listening to this podcast or following Cinema Australia because you've missed the point. And uh, two, go out there and watch them. <laughs>
2: Well, I I want to add on to that as well, Matt, because you were saying that you're up to the 50s for Australian films this year. And, you know, I had a look at my list and I've watched 49 Australian films that have Mm. been uh, released this year, or at least, uh, uh, you know, certainly not far away from from coming out next year. Mm. Um, And one of the things, I'm sure that you probably get it too, but one of the things that really pisses me off is when I discuss Australian films with people and like And I hear people say, oh, we don't really make that many. I'm like, well, I just watched 49 of the darn things this year and they were all pretty darn good. So, you know, (laughs) broaden your horizon, folks, and and certainly um, keep an eye on what Matt pushes out with Cinema Australia uh, because he's how I find out about a lot of stuff that's coming out and the awareness of what Australian films do exist. Mm -hmm. Um, And read, you know, tooting my own horn, but I put up a top 30 Australian films of the year list every year and um, read that. There's 30 great Australian films that you can seek out and they're always available on different platforms. Um, Mm -hmm. We do make a lot of great content. Mm -hmm. Uh, You just need to get off your, your your high horse and
0: um, go and see it. Now, I think um, there's... Sorry, some...
2: I'm abusing the listeners. No, no, no. That's no, not very nice. No. No, I do that all the <laughs> go
0: time. Go and see <laughs> these movies. No, now, now <laughs> I think that there's something very, very important that we should mention here and that's that uh, Travis, Andrew and I are in a very, very privileged position to be able to see a lot of these films, one, before they're released at the cinema, um, two, we get invited to a lot of media screenings, um, you know, people will send us screeners. So we are very, very aware that we are in this privileged position to see a lot of these films but they are out there they're there for you to go and see so so go and watch them um speaking of uh next year is there anything that you two would like our listeners to know about you both there is there anything exciting coming up anything that you you want to let people know about
2: yeah look one of the things which i haven't properly announced yet but i've been working on it um gradually is that Uh, one of the discussions which I've been having with myself, I regularly have these discussions with myself at home because I live by myself, um, but I is about the importance of the actor awards or slash AFI awards. And, you know, as it comes to the end of the year, there's often the Oscar discussion. Oh, is this an Oscar contended film? Is this an Oscar contending film? And we're recording this on the, on the, the day that the first half of the actor awards are going up. And, there's not really much of a social media fervour around it, which is a little bit disappointing. But what I'm going to be doing next year is a bit of a project working through the uh, the films that have been nominated for Best Picture and certainly reviewing and discussing the importance of the films that have won Best Picture mm, uh, because I think that there is a lot of great Australian films that have won uh, Best AFI film or Best Actor Award film that have kind of been lost in the the. the you know, the discussion. And certainly one of the films is uh, not available anywhere, which is Kiss or Kill, which came out in the 90s. And that's, um, you (laughs) know, it's it's, it's gone. And that's the other part of the discussion which I want to have is like, Uh, retaining cultural importance of Australian history, the Australian cinema history and things like that. Uh, A lot of these films that are actually nominated for the big prize at the actor and AFI awards are no longer available anywhere at all. They're not on DVD. they are never hit a streaming service. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that piracy is the way, but unfortunately for some of these films, piracy might have to be the way that I have to obtain them. Uh, And hopefully um, by shining a spotlight on their importance and their value, uh, uh, it might encourage a bit of discussion and reflection
0: on Australia's biggest film prize award. That sounds fantastic. And I know Umbrella uh, films or un- Umbrella Entertainment are constantly looking for new films to release uh, on DVD. Mm-hmm. So um, if there's anyone from Umbrella out there listening, get on to that because that sounds very exciting. Um, Trav, anything from you? Oh, nothing as impressive as that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ah, uh, you know, I'm I'm just out here hoeing my own row. I'm just writing for whoever will pay me and doing my thing. And uh, yeah, look, I've got a couple of projects, sort of larger projects, sort of in very, very, very early stages of development. Uh, but nothing I can really sort of announce with any, any confidence at this stage. <laughs> uh, so yeah, watching movies and writing
0: reviews and getting into weird fights on social media. That's me for the next 12 months. <laughs> All very important stuff. Um, so, uh, to our listeners who are listening to this, as uh, soon as it goes up, we've got our, uh, cinema Australia audience award, um, and voting still open for that. So you can go to dot au to cast your vote. Um, we'll be revealing the winner for that on Jan- on uh, December th- no sorry January one and we'll also be releasing uh, our top five list um, um, for the year and uh, also next year uh, I'm launching a new film festival called WA Made Film Festival um, and we have a few uh, very exciting announcements to make about that um, but Travis and uh, Andrew I can't thank you enough for uh, joining us and it's a bloody pity that us three only really get to catch up together once a year down at Cinefest Oz or, you know, these film festivals. I'd love to see you guys more. But um, thank you for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. Thank
2: Thank you you. so much for having us. Yeah, it's been great. Mm.
4: It's been awesome.